Hello and welcome back, or welcome, if it's your first time, to Author Conversations presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster. Today I am speaking with another husband and wife writing team, James and Vicki Irwin, regarding their latest book, Steamboat Disasters of the Lower Missouri River. During the 19th century, more than 300 boats met their end in the steamboat graveyard that was the Lower Missouri River, from Omaha to its mouth. Although derided as little more than an orderly pile of kindling, Steamboats were, in fact, technological marvels superbly adapted to the river's conditions. Their light superstructure and long, wide, flat hulls powered by high-pressure engines drew so little water that they could cruise on a heavy dew, even when fully loaded. But these same characteristics made them susceptible to fires, explosions, and snags. Authors Vicki and James Irwin detailed the perils that steamboats, their passengers, and crews faced on every voyage. Vicki Berger Irwin has written 29 books in varied genres, picture books, middle-grade mysteries, and novels, local histories, and true crime. Her husband, James W. Irwin, has written only four previous books, three on Civil War in Missouri, and a history of St. Charles, Missouri. They owned a bookstore in St. Charles for eight years before they retired. Vicki and Jim met in Ellis Library at the University of Missouri, Columbia. They checked each other out, and the rest is history. They live in Kirkwood, Missouri, and this is their first book together. James and Vicki, thanks for joining me today. We're so glad to be here with you. Glad to be here. All right, so in the age before steamboats, and we're going to get into, because there's different types of steamboats, too. People think about steamships, but that's really for ocean going. But there's steamboats, different types of steamboats. But before that happens, what's life like along the Missouri River? In other words, who lives along the banks? Who used it for exploration? When... Before the steamboat era, mm-hmm. there was there were settlements along the Missouri River that were mostly agricultural. They were called it was called the Boonslick area at that time. Most people lived in the St. Louis area, but there were settlements along the Boonslick. Even before that, of course, there were Native Americans who used the river for transportation, who used the river for food. Um, and it was always along a river, along any water source, was always a place where people settled. There were also the fur trappers who went even further north using the river, using canoes and um, uh, what they called pierogies and keel boats to get to where they needed to go. The Boonslick citizens were the ones who were the most happy about the steamboats, however. Yeah. And the river, when the steamboats came along, the river itself had to change, and they had to had to adapt boats for the river too, right? That's correct. That's correct. Let Jim talk about that a little bit. Adapting boats for the river. Oh, and well, the steamboats, and this is a part I was particularly interested in. The steamboats were actually they were a technological marvel. Uh, you wouldn't think of them as that maybe today, but at the time they were because uh, the first steamboats they tried up the river had deep keels. They were like ocean-going vessels, even had sails. Uh, But then they realized they didn't need sails. Uh, They realized that the river was too shallow and too fast for a deep keel like an ocean-going boat, so the uh, steamboats were basically flat-bottomed, like a barge, a powered barge. And uh, that enabled them to get up very far up the river, uh, eventually even into Montana, uh, where the river was uh, was very shallow, and uh, help them deal with uh, 
the different stages of the river because the river could be at any time, you know, four feet deep or some maybe 30 or 40 feet deep in the same spot, depending upon the time of year. Uh, and uh, these uh, the flat-bottom boats um, uh, were very uh, well adapted. In fact, Mark Twain said that a, a steamboat could, could steam on a heavy dew. Uh, they also had other uh, innovations. Uh, one was the uh, they used what was called a high-pressure steam engine because it provided much more power, but it was very unsafe. Uh, if it wasn't operated properly, it was susceptible, very susceptible to explosions. Um, and so uh, some of the innovations that made the steamboat successful were also some of the things that made them very uh, vulnerable to uh, disasters, explosions, fires, uh, sinkings by having the snags, the tree trunks that were caught in the bottom of the river go through the bottom of the boat. Yeah, and you brought up snags and weather and, uh, you know, hostels and things of that nature, hostel situations. And we'll talk about that a little more because I have a few stories I want to bring up. I don't want to tell all the stories because we want people to buy your book, obviously. But <laughs> exactly. you talk about the design, and but that some of the designs led into the danger in operating them. And you brought that up a little bit, especially with explosions, because there is a certain level that needed to be kept up in the boiler of the fresh water. And even the water itself could be mucky. And it could. You, I was reading the book, and you said that could cause problems in the boiler um, with it getting stove up or getting clogged up. But also, didn't some of the ships had to run to keep the water up um, to cool off the boiler? Right. Yes, it had to, they had to actually uh, actually had to to run it uh, because they used uh, the pumps that were steam driven uh, to uh, to bring the water up from the river. And of course, Missouri, the big muddy. <laughs> was full of silt and sand. Uh, it was so bad that they had to essentially clean the boilers out like every other, every day or so. Uh, someone had to actually go inside them and clean the stuff out. Uh, they did come up with some other innovations later on to help uh, filter it out. Um, and some of the other obstacles, you know, we talked about, you know, because the Missouri River could get icy. There was just because you've got one tree out doesn't mean another tree's not going to float downstream later on when the when the river gets higher with rains that come down and bring uh, another tree down. So you would have the snags, hostels, uh, fires always an issue on a ship um, or a boat of any kind of size. Um, but can we talk a bit about the Molly Dozier? Would you share a bit about that story? Oh. Vicky's favorite story. That's my favorite ship. <laughs> oh, I mean, awesome. as, as we as we researched these boats, some of them just kind of developed personalities. The thing I'm most disappointed about in the whole in the whole thing of working on this book was that I never found a picture of the Molly Dozier. And um I would love to have seen it someday. Well, the Molly Dozier was captained by a man named Frank Dozier, and it was named after his wife, Molly. Now, the Molly Dozier encountered almost every disaster that you could possibly encounter on the Missouri River. It um, entered the trade in 1865, which was at the end of the Civil War. It was boarded by rebels at one point, and they were looking for a federal soldier 
and they did find him after they had drank all the liquor and eaten all the food and stolen all the money and terrorized all the passengers. They were attacked by Indians, and on that particular trip, uh, Captain Dozier had his wife and his baby with him. They were all up in the um, on the bridge. They were attacked. Some of the people on the bridge jumped out the window and kind of hung onto the side. Captain Dozier grabbed his baby and uh, made it down the steps. None of them were injured or killed during that trip, but it was never mentioned what happened to his wife during that time. I don't know if he left her behind or if he took her along when he took the baby. Um, eventually, the Molly Dozier sank when it hit a snag, and uh, the place where it sank was forever after known as the Molly Dozier Chute because of the dangers that that part of the river proved to have. Yeah, if I was Captain Dozier, my next boat would probably be called the Murphy's Law. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no I'm kidding. <laughs> that would have been a great name for a boat he was captaining. Yeah, that story was... Uh, I'm glad you said that was one of your favorite stories. It was one of my favorite stories to read about, too. And in Chapter 4, you know, we talk about explosions uh, on there, too. And that's just a really interesting chapter. And... When you, you know, if you go on a cruise or anything, and I think I said it earlier too, you know, some of the things, you know, you think about fire, you think about explosions, but ice on the Missouri is just as dangerous as well. And when I was reading the book, it just, I was thinking like, what are they doing? But then it has a red more. It just felt like, well, these guys, you know, it's, it's about making a living for them. And it felt exactly. like, and tell me if I'm wrong, did they often feel like the risk was worth this, uh, the reward that they would get? Yes, they did. And sometimes in one trip, a steamboat could make back as much as it cost for them to build the boat, outfit the boat, and take the trip. And so, yes, it was very much worth the cost to take those risks. And sometimes the boat made very few or, you know, didn't make but a couple of trips before they were destroyed in one way or another. There were so many ways they could be destroyed. The average length of service for a steamboat on the Missouri River was only three years. Yeah, they came up and, with a way to build them kind of quickly, too, because of that, right? They kind of built yes. it, made it a science almost. Yes, they, they, they built them very quickly. And, uh, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they built them with uh, materials that were uh, <laughs> uh, readily available. I mean, you know, the... The hulls and so forth were, were very solid white oak, but the uh, superstructures were very light because they wanted to keep the weight down so they could get through the shallow river. And it's very easy to, to, to kind of basically slap them together. And and uh, one of the things that struck me about a description of the boat coming up river was not only you know the steam whistle, which is very piercing if you've ever heard a steam whistle, but also that the boat would be panting. And the boilers would be expanding and contracting, and the boat itself would be kind of you know bending up and down. And it was it was kind of a rickety contraption, but it worked very well. Yeah, when you you know you, that description it reminds me of the old Disney cartoons or you know a Warner <laughs> yeah. Brothers cartoon when you see an old whether it be a boat or a train or even a car where it looks like there is breathing. You know where they make the car yep. a character itself or the machine a character itself. It kind of has that kind of quality to it. Yes, exactly. So as like with can you give us an example or explain why 
it was or what the advantages was or a disadvantage of having a side wheel steamer versus a stern wheel steamer? Well, the, uh, the side wheel steamer, uh, because you could run this, the uh, the uh, paddle wheels in opposite directions, gave you a great deal of maneuverability. And in the Missouri River, which is fairly narrow, that was that would be important to be able to uh, not only to dock or well, essentially land, because there were very few docks actually, or to go around the various bends in the river. And there were lots and lots of bends in the river. Uh, uh, it, 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 the primary advantage was the maneuverability. The disadvantage was it took up a lot of space on the deck that you could otherwise put cargo on. Uh, and also it, uh, there was a disadvantage that uh, snags and debris in the river get caught in the paddle wheels. The stern wheeler uh, didn't have that disadvantage in the sense that it, since it was behind the boat, uh, it was less likely to be caught into the various things that would be coming down the river, the logs, the snags, the driftwood, and all that sort of thing. Uh, and it also uh, provided more space for cargo. Uh, the problem with the, steam, the stern wheeler was they, it was not as maneuverable until they developed a system of rudders that managed to uh, overcome that problem. And when they did that, uh, particularly after the Civil War, then the, uh, the uh, stern wheeler became the prevalent kind of steamboat on the river. Before the Civil War, it was the side wheeler. Yeah. And, you know, you brought the Civil War, and we did talk, touch a little bit on the Civil War when we talked about the Molly Dozier, but what other kind of dangers could a steamboat face during the Civil War? And do we have any stories you would like to share from the Civil War? Well, we have a, it was a very lengthy one about the uh, raid on the new Sam Gaddy, which uh, I won't go into the details of. I hope you can read the book for that one. Uh, but it, it, it illustrates uh, during the Civil War, um, Missouri was uh, plagued by guerrilla warfare, and the uh, guerrillas uh, operated uh, along the Missouri River, uh, in the, particularly in central and western Missouri. And uh, they would be, uh, uh, you know, firing into the boats. Occasionally, they boarded them. Uh, in the case of the New San Gaddy, they not only boarded the boat and robbed the passengers, but there were uh, about a hundred. Uh, escaped slaves on board heading to Kansas, and they took them off and, and uh, murdered some of them. Uh, but uh, you know, this, was a, this was a danger in addition to all the other dangers of going on the river, fire, explosions, snags, ice, and everything else. Then they also had to deal with uh, the possibility of guerrillas, even to the point where uh, later in the war the, uh, they put iron plates around the pilot houses and to uh, protect the, the pilot and the captain uh, from rifle fire and pistol fire from the banks. Uh, they also did that uh, occasionally when they went uh, up north uh, and had to deal, because there were hostile uh, Native American tribes, uh, even during the Civil War that they had to, be, had to deal with, and a similar kind of uh, uh, protection was, was used in the pilot houses that went up there as well. Yeah, and... You know, as we you know, kind of start to wind down together, and I could tell, you know, when you're when you're writing about the Arabia, the effect it kind of had on you, those you know, the discovery there of the that steamship, and you know, when I first heard about it, I was kind of you know, I thought, wow, they discovered this wreck in a cornfield, <laughs> you know, but the river changes over time, and just like I live down where I live at, we have marshes, and the marshes change obviously over time. You know, where the marsh I have near 
to where I'm sitting at right now. It didn't. It doesn't look the same way it looked a hundred years ago or fifty years ago. Um, so waterways will change over time. Um, but where this place, where the Arabia was found, and you talk about too about how they in your book about how the they try to discover it and try to salvage it at different times. But when it was finally discovered, the artifacts on board really were special because it gives us a glimpse at life in the mid-1800s in America on what we would consider really um, on the border of the frontier in America. Um, did this help get you interested in steamboats, or were you always fascinated by life on the Missouri River? The Arabia was exactly what got us interested and actually gave us the idea or the inspiration to write this book. We took a weekend trip one, oh, it was many years ago. I would say it was 15, maybe even 20 years ago, to Hannibal, which is a town on the Mississippi River, not the Missouri River. Um, they had this little display of a ship that had been uncovered which we later discovered was the Arabia. And all of the goods that we saw, the buckets and barrels of, of little beads that were on their way to be used as trade goods for Native Americans, um, the shoes, there were so many shoes, there were hats, there were dishes, there were everything, and it just fascinated us what they had done. We later went to the Arabia Museum, which is still open in Kansas City, and thought about it. And the time just wasn't right. And when we finally got to a point where we said, hey, maybe our next book should be about steamboat disasters. And I have to say, the first thing anybody asks us about or mentions when we say, oh, our book, that we're, our book that's coming out next is on steamboat disasters, they go, have you ever heard about the Arabia? Have you ever been to that museum? And obviously that is exactly what inspired us to do this book. The people that uncovered the Arabia, when they first went into it, I think we're looking for something that was going to be like a treasure ship. Mm -hmm. It was going to be, they were going to find a treasure. They were going to make money from what they uncovered on the boat. But as they got deeper and deeper into it and found more and more things and kind of looked into the history of what had happened and what all of these things meant to the people that they were headed toward, they decided, too, that it was more a historical-type thing and should be preserved than something that should be just broken up and sold in little pieces to make them some money. So yeah. that was that was a big discovery on their part, and it's been a blessing for all the people that have gotten to go see it. Yeah, and from a historical standpoint, to us, it is a treasure ship in that way. It was very much a treasure ship of history. Thanks for talking to me today. I appreciate it. Well, okay. thank you, and we wish you the best. All right. All right. Thank you so Good much, fun. guys. Have a great day. Bye, Johnny. Thanks again to Jim and Vicky for being on, and thank you, the audience, for listening. You can find Vicki and Jim's books at ArcadiaPublishing.com or at your local bookstore. While you're at ArcadiaPublishing.com, enter in your zip code to the search bar to see what books Arcadia Publishing and the History Press has on your town. If you have an idea for a book and want to tell your local history story, reach out to Arcadia by visiting ArcadiaPublishing.com, scroll on down to the bottom of the page, and click the Make Me an Author link. It's the first step in writing your own history book and telling the history of your town, state, or region. If you have questions for me or episode suggestions, shoot me an email at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. 
As always, I want to thank my pals Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the show's theme song. Remember, you can visit them on Facebook at Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>